Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. We must complete our epic task of noting our top five films from the 80s. Uh, But before we dive back in and finish off where we left up, uh, it might be worth reminding ourselves of uh, what Sue's top five films from the 80s were. So I shall now play this prepared clip. Sue's top five films from the 1980s. Number five. It's Flight of the Navigator. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful visuals. The characters are just brilliant in it. Probably one of the funniest, most whimsical films that you could think of, really, is a children's film. Number four. Top Gun. I absolutely adore aeroplanes. It's visually beautiful. Soundtrack and a half. Great romantic interest with Tom Cruise and Kelly McGuinness. The whole dynamic between Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer, it's a good film. I think people underestimate how good Top Gun is. There isn't any more 80s than Top Gun. Number three. Never-ending story. I like things that, that emote things in me. And that makes me laugh, cry. It gives you some frightening things in it. it. It moves emotions. But at the same time, it's beautiful. It's absolutely stunningly produced and directed. Because it's just the epitome to me of how things should be done as far as children's films go. Number two. Abyss. It's a bit slow, I must admit. It has a bit of a slow story. But I can't doubt how visually impactful it is, how nice a story it is, how breathtaking. It's breathtakingly beautiful. I think a lot of films owe it a massive debt of gratitude. And Sue's number one film from the 1980s is... Lost Boys. Well, if you're going to combine 80s films together, that's it. That's the epitome. If you're going to go, well, I want a bit of something that's action, comedy, horror, teeny, fun, that's it. That's the one you pick up. That's the one you go, there you go, this is the Lost Boys, go and have fun. Well, wasn't that delightful? Now, uh, just before we dive back in, it's worth recapping for the listeners at home what our choices are so far. So, this is our top five. We've already done so far five, four, three. Today we're doing two, one. So, our previous choices were as recorded in this clip here. Justin, Leo and Ian's top five films of the 80 years. Number five. Okay, number five is Princess Bride. Back to the Future Part 2. War Games. Number four. Um, I'm going for The Thing. Uh, my number four is The Evil Dead 2. Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. Number three. And number three is Brazil. Princess Bride, me and Justin both had The Princess Bride. Aliens. To be continued. And that's done. Right, shall we proceed with our top 
two remaining films. Yes, and uh, Justin, uh, we, we're going to take a slightly different format this week to the final two. We're each going to recount our top two in order. You know, obviously overlaps, the same protocol exists. If someone picks one first, then we discuss it at that time, and the other person just kind of says, oh, I picked that as well, and then we move on. So um, let's hope that there hasn't, there isn't a huge amount of overlap. Well, actually, we'll, we'll decide on the order, depending on what Justin's top two are. If they're completely different to mine, then I will go last. And if they're completely different to Ian's, then Ian will go last. So, Ian, you're number two first, sir. Justin, sorry, Justin. Sorry, Justin. Um, uh, Right, so, yeah, there might be some overlap because these are quite famous. (laughs) These are a couple of big films. Um, So, the order of these, so for number two, I'm going for Raiders. Um, Okay, stop there. We'll talk about Raiders now. I haven't got Raiders. How about you, Ian? No. Right, so Raiders time. All right. I now this would have been my number one, but you know if I was definitely doing it at the time, Raiders I've probably seen more than any other film I've seen. It just for me the pacing of it it was relentless and it had so much in it that I would watch it the next year and forget all these little bits. So I'm just constantly watching it, constantly seeing nuances, different different parts of it again and again. So you know it was something that gives it kept on giving. I just went crazy for this. I mean, Harrison Ford is just amazing. He is probably, at that time, you know, one of the most charismatic actors, you know, for me, probably of all time. He just has something that's very special. So that role, you know, I mean, Han Solo is a role is pretty awesome. But Indiana Jones, I just fell in love with it. I mean, I just... The spirit of it, I love the tie, I love I love the pulpiness of it, I love the action adventure, the supernatural. I mean it just, you know, was kind of it would it would kind of bludgeon you with with the pace and the drama of it. There was always some bigger thing to kind of go onto and onto and building and building, building. Um, and you know, and what you know, if you can have a bad guy then have the Nazis, you know, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> It's just, it, 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 to me, it's like perfect action film. You know, that's what I want from it. I want something that is going to leave me breathless. It's got people I genuinely care for and, like, just, you know, re- just love their on-screen presence. Music, obviously, John Williams is astounding, you know, and, and, and can arguably say it's half the film because, you know, that's what he brings to films. Um, so we'll, we'll, you know, that that anthem will play in my head forever. Every time I'm walking down the street and feeling a bit adventurous, you know, it just for me is outstanding, you know, and um, and yes, so close to number one. But I, I just absolutely adore Indiana Jones, and and this is by far the best of of them. Yeah. So, any comments? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I saw the film at, at the time in the cinema when I must have been bizarrely young to be watching a movie like this where people's faces melt at the end. Yes, it was a rip-roaring action movie. It's my, it's my favourite indie film. I think all indie, other indie films, even Last Crusade, are dwarves compared to Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, and that's its proper name. It's not Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's Raiders. It, it was the. Yeah. It was a seriously awesome film. It had a lot of influence on, on some of my friends. He was he was obsessed with temples laden with traps. He would make some himself 
to propel action figures through. It, uh, that, that was a, a huge thing in me growing up. But I think actually seeing it at the time, the thing that really stuck with me was the, was the very strong supernatural element at the end. And it has to be said, I've never seen, you know, God, genuine God, biblical God, Judeo-Christian God presented in that fashion before. Like, like he is a, a genuinely how he is seen in the Old Testament is how he is at the end of that movie. He's an absolute dangerously terrifying badass, and you better get on your knees and start begging to him because he's the true God, you suffering little mortal. Genuine column of fire. I know all those uh, maidens swirling through the air and suddenly developing a skull face, and then you melt. And the whole thing about not looking at them. So you, you kind of, it's a very easy way to avoid the fight. You kind of have to retain your innocence by not looking at the divine. That stuck with me an awful lot. It's a film that definitely um, haunted me afterwards as well, I think. And of course, you know, even before you get to that big ending, you've got all, all the fun and shapes. Of you know, Indy battling his way through a small army of Nazis, which is always tremendously entertaining. It is such a unique film. In many ways, it's like it's a shame they had to make you know some sequels that weren't quite so good afterwards. Because it's like if it had just been left as it was, it would have just been so so perfect. It is a brilliant film. I'm surprised we had to go down our list so far before we collided with a Spielberg blockbuster. But here we are at number two. Uh, definitely with a choice. Leo, over to you. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to, to, that I've got to say about Raiders. Uh, first of all, uh, how do the both of you respond then to the uh, the as previously covered uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, plot hole problem? Uh, I, I'm not clear of such thing. Uh, okay, well, I might be about to ruin your life then. Indiana Jones in that film has no impact on the events that occur. Uh, he had an impact on me. <laughs> well, yes, but in terms of what happens, he, he didn't really need to be there. Uh, yes, he does. Because without him, the American government wouldn't have been able to seize the Ark and put it in their warehouse at the end. It would presumably be left abandoned on an island. And maybe some other Nazis would have come along later and had a look and see if they could get their hands on it. And then died. And then, well, only if they were stupid enough to open it and have a look inside. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just. I'm just restating the case. A case uh, that, well, yes. that caused such anguish. An entire episode of the Big Bang Theory revolved around it. Yes, because they, they uh, never, the Nazis never would have found the Ark if Indy hadn't found it first. And ultimately, he, he doesn't do anything to prevent the Nazis from opening it. He lets them do it because it's curious. And so the God smites the Nazis for him. So and, ultimately, what was he there for? Let's 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 move on from that particular thing because it's covered adequately elsewhere. I think one of the interesting things for me is that, that you take on face value that they open the chest and it's God. And it's like, well, then, but... It, it introduces a philosophical question, which is, uh, just because of what happened, at no point is there a big billboard that says, by the way, God is doing this. So therefore, you know, yeah, we, we've got a phenomenon and you can explain it. You know, it's like a lot of things that uh, previously were unexplainable. And you say, well, this happened because God. Um, did the uh, events at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark happen because God? Is that what it is? Well, you, you get, you or are get, we seeing something that we too do not really fully comprehend no, no, or it, understand? It's very abstract in, in a funny sort of way. And uh, I think, you know, it, the, thing, the takeaway message was they, they poked their stick into a, a Cthulhu-sized beehive of kick-ass and uh, they paid the price, I think is ultimately yes. the takeaway message. But just because, just because it's ineffable, uh, because we can't eff it and because we can't, you know, like 
we we it, it, what it says to you is you you don't even know what you're seeing. Nobody knows what they're seeing here. Something is happening, and then this you know ancient and powerful. I think is the takeaway thing. So. Yeah, and if you if you close your eyes, it doesn't hurt you, and that's what we know. But we don't know why or who 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 that was. So it's a, it has that point of something that's very philosophical. If you choose to walk away from it, believing that it was that because God, fine, because nobody can prove that it wasn't. But simultaneously, if you choose to go away and say, oh, but something was going on, we just don't know what, which is a far more scientific attitude, then again, you can't prove that it was God. You can't prove either way. So that's, I think, where you can get away with having God as a character in a movie when you can't prove whether the actions that God claimed to have performed were actually performed by God or not so yeah that, that's fine we, we 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 like that uh so yes a film that has a lot of action and adventure and indeed a philosophical conundrum displayed in massive special effects at the end what more indeed could one ask for yeah. uh so justin uh now has come the time we we <laughs> cometh the hour cometh the man cometh the number one film of the 80s from the perspective of one mr justin wyatt what is it sir what is the most important film of the 80s in your consideration it is blade runner well gosh no overlap from me no nope. blade runner is i absolutely adore i just love it you know i've got a kind of a big love for kind of noir and that kind of feel so it's got all of those kind of detective things. I, Harrison Ford again, which I just, you know, what I love about him in this is um, he's so vulnerable in it. And that's what I love. He really gets, you know, beaten to a pulp in this film. He is the absolute quintessential kind of flawed, you know, hero. And um, it has some just, I mean, visually, it just has some amazing set pieces. It was groundbreaking in terms of, portraying that future you know we've seen plenty of stuff since okay visually in the cinema but that was the first time and i know cyberpunk had already been around but that was the first time that had been fully realized and shown it was a it was a future that was grimy it was you know it wasn't gleaming and spaceships and you know it was this was something that could exist maybe not in 2020 as we you know 2019 as we as we are aware of fully aware of but it seems like, you know, if humanity was going to gonna kind of build these cities, then they would be grimy and mix, a mix of cultures. And, you know, so it's, it's very credible looking. It has um, just, I say, kind of stunning visuals. Um, Harrison Ford is amazing. I just, honestly, I, ju- I just can't get enough of Blade Runner. And I know critically um, it, didn't, it didn't have a very good reception at the time. Um, but I, I will always go back to it. Always enjoy it. I just think it's. I think it's amazing. I think it's just stunning. Uh, yes, it is my <laughs> brother's <laughs> favourite film. He told me that once, and of course, I have a much older brother. So he tells me it's the greatest science fiction film ever made, and I go watch it, and it goes over my head because I'm just frankly too young. You come back to it later, and it's a film I, I inevitably come to when you start doing film studies as, as as you want to do when you're doing media courses uh, that is this is future noir that it was it is absolutely a, a visual treat and there's lots of little layered messages in there about, about Deckard is he a replicant as well as is as supposed in the director's cut and of course it's also it's, it's got that morally mixed thing 
Because incidentally, I, I just want to break in. The writers say no. By the way, just so yes, I know. The writers, writers, say, the writers say no. Harrison Ford says no. Director says yes. Um, so there we go. <laughs> uh, so, but um, it's it's that morally mixed thing because he's hunting down his, his replicas and killing them. Who does Harrison Ford kill in this movie? He shoots two women, one of them in the back. They are both unarmed when he does so, and this is your hero. And it's and it's the fact that this is put out there and it's not challenged. And you know, maybe it kind of goes into your spongy brain, and it's not quite right. And, uh, and, and obviously, it culminates at the end where we have our villain save. Spoilers, everyone saves the hero. He's a he's, he's a replicant, and he out humanities humanity. He shows mercy to his enemy, and then lays down his emeralds. I didn't mention Ruger Howell, but he is incredible in this. It's his best. And, I think, and I think the most amazing, I mean, the, be, the Orion speech, which is possibly one of the most iconic cinematic speeches ever, was just made up by Ruger Howell, who just went, uh, what about this? <laughs> Even the dove was improvised on the moment as well. I yep. think, like, just grab yep. the dove. There we go. It's, it's, it's beautiful and poetic, you know, all those moments we lost like tears in the rain. It is the, that whole speech. It is. It is. In many ways, it's kind of like it's such an important speech for science fiction fans. I think you know. It's like why into science fiction? Well, you see the things that I've seen: epic battles, worlds uh, at stake. My goodness, how can you not be into this? So yes, it, for me, it was always a film that was was even when I was not caring too much for it at the time. As a kid, it's a film I've just, I've just used, come to appreciate more and more and more. I think the criticisms of it being a bit slow and Deckard not doing too much detecting, all things considered, are quite accurate. It is a quite ponderous film. But it, it, it is, if you just let yourself go and go with the visuals and the soundtrack, let yourself go with the soundtrack as well, Vangelis. It is, quite frankly, a work of art. I'm not surprised it's your top film. I thought Brazil might have been your top film. I am I'm not surprised that it's Blade Runner. Yeah, but... Again, I mean, it, the thing about it is that uh, Blade Runner, I mean, we've, we've talked uh, ad nauseum about how the Abyss looks crazy, crazy good these days uh, with all the technology. And that was made in 1989. I recently got the first DVD I put in to watch on my new HD television and all the upscalers and all that sort of stuff was Blade Runner. And I think people who criticise Blade Runner for the things that are criticisable about it I probably have never ever seen it in fine detail because again it's another film that doesn't really work unless you see it the full banana like if you see uh, you know even a dvd on an old style television you can't really tell what's going on the, the, as soon as you get it into hd you pick out all this fine detail you realize that the pace is not slow it's just it has to be adjusted you know all the things that happen and the, the 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 voices that come and all of this. It's a big arrangement. It's a real piece of filmmaking because uh, if you're watching it with all the HD on, you kind of your eyes are too blasted with stuff to see. That if it moved the same pace as you know Bayformers or something like that, you wouldn't be able to take it in. Your head would probably explode. And, yeah, I mean, the soundtrack is incredibly important. And the soundtrack is incredibly important for several reasons, not least because because of the soundtrack uh, to Blade Runner, those speeches, the Tears in the Rain speech and all that, and other various things that are said, little snippets of speech from throughout Blade Runner, have permeated electronica culture 
to this day, you know, you'll always come across an electronica track with a bit of Rutger Hauer or a bit of, uh, you know, because, of course, the soundtrack famously has samples. They're not really samples. They're cut in from the soundtrack while they were multi-layering the thing. Um, there are bits on the soundtrack where you hear Harrison Ford's voice uh, with electronic music. And it's this idea of layering voices of a noir film or a, a cultural thing with electronic music that that it was born in Blade Runner, this idea that, that you could do that. And, it, you know, so Blade Runner comes as part of Electronica, it comes part of hip hop, it becomes part of, you know, so how can a film, you know, a film influences the way that we think about dystopia, dystopian futures, like every time from that on you see grimy pipes in a future setting it's blade runner-esque you invoke blade runner you're invoking blade runner every time you do it it influences music every electronica artist knows and loves there are tracks electronica tracks more than one probably called attack ships on fire the reason being because of that speech that rutkauer made up you know how can you say you know whatever you've got to criticize about it as a work of maybe storytelling or a work of narrative is completely blown away by the fact that, yeah, okay, but culture, like, culture just embraced all bits of it. You don't need to even watch the whole thing for it to have a massive impact on your life. And that is, you know, that is Blade Runner, and that's why it's a, it's a great choice for number one. So, yes, I, I excellent to, stuff, Justin. I will break in just, just to add, add a final point. You say it, the visuals really, really hammer it home. Uh, Blade Runner is another one of those films that didn't get big until video. Uh, it was it was it was kind of a bomb in the cinemas, as far as I was aware. And, mm. and video is where it found its its cult home. Well, video, I say visuals are very the visuals kind of tell you why it's kind of a bit plodding, but the the soundtrack is also, as I said, immensely important. And that wasn't really affected that much by being transferred to video. And you could buy it separately anyway. So yeah, that's all. Carry on. Yep, I'm done. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, it's that's, that's it's it. they're my choice. Brilliant, marvelous. Right now, I understand, Justin, that you you must you must be away. I must, I must be away, unfortunately. So rather, well, that means I'm that really the top twos are going to be a complete surprise to you after the oh, fact. I listen to this. So I'm I'm yeah. I, it's a shame I'm not going because I'm really enjoying this and it's just getting to the, uh, the juicy stuff. I, I will You have enjoyed one of mine. I'll, I'll tease you with so that. I, I will look forward to hearing that uh, later. So yes. So. Uh, for now, so, Justin, adieu. Then. And uh, well. uh, we'll see you on the other side. Will do. Well, Matt, so terribly sorry to see him go. Well, yes, much apart from anything else. Now, it's only us two waffling. Actually, we might be able, I don't know, the wife's currently uh, consulting tomes about centre parks. Ooh, if they want to sponsor this show and send us free holidays, we'd be perfectly happy to accept them. But yeah, she's currently <laughs> leafing through those leaflets. But if she has anything to say about anything that we've got going, I'm sure she'll weigh in, as she usually does. So there we go. Right, so as we've had no overlaps at all so far... I who's gonna go first? I don't know. Do you want to go first to save your voice a bit, maybe? Ian? Okay, uh, I'm convinced at this point. However, we will have no further overlaps. Okay, I will I, I, I tentatively say that. Maybe my next one, but after that, definitely not. Okay, okay. so what's your number two, Ian? My number two choice, one of my favourite films of the eighties, is Time Bandits. Ooh, yes, Time Bandits. How can I explain this? This movie works the same way my head does. That's the only way I can explain it. 
seeing this as a kid, it it the, the things that are nonsensical make sense to me. Of course, you can push one of your bedroom walls, and it just naturally extends outwards. You know, of course, you can put the entirety of space and time past, present and future onto a map you can put in your pocket. Of course, there's a piece of glass which has one of you from one side, but is in fact completely different the other side. It's just kind of all there. The imagination in this film really touched me as a kid. I mean, as a kid, I think I was a little bored during the Napoleon stuff, a little bored during the Agamemnon stuff, but it's a film that just does not hang around. It keeps putting itself forwards. And I think the characters are just so relatable to me as a kid as well when you have randall and strutter and og and all the others and the kevin's just kind of a kid so he's kind of your proxy i suppose but the whole kind of adventure and the silliness of it really got to me yes of course it's not a boat it is in fact a hat hat of a giant who's underwater it's just all these little gilliam touches that come in that just really seem to make resonate with me as a kid it's just how my weird abstract brain works when it's being slightly feverish you know you look around you'd be quite introspective or be quite ex- existential about the world and the material it's made of and how permeable it could be so you know i could totally believe mysterious black doors could appear from nowhere and take you to somewhere else of course that sort of thing goes on and also you know it really does build up to a wonderful crescendo at the end when they're in the fortress of ultimate darkness facing david warner giving a brilliant sort of straight-faced minimalist performance as as, as the evil and uh, the showdown where they, you know, bringing in you know, cowboys and the cowboys all are so evil. So evil starts spinning on the spot and making a noise like a carousel. Then his head opens up and out comes a knife and he cuts the rope that the cowboys are hanging onto. And centrifugal force throws them away. Of course that happened. You know, it's just it's sort of almost cartoony in a funny sort of way. But it, it just really like, ah, oh, as a kid, it really touched the spot. I think it's a wonderful film. I, I love the fact it has such darkness in it as well. Because, you know, again, we have God turning up at the end, uh, in much of a contrast to Red of the Lost Ark. This God, however, he's, he's like a disinterested headmaster. And, and in some ways, that's so terrifying. He takes away all Kevin's friends and abandons him to be on his own. No, someone must stay here to carry on the good fight. You know, so that sort of sense of abandonment as well. And it's one of the few films where it all turns out to be kind of a dream was not actually a disappointment. It should be. It should be the most cliche ending you can stick on any fantasy film you can imagine. But they get away with it because of of the bleakness of it and the fact that his parents are indeed vaporized by a piece of evil they found in the oven. The thing is, as a kid, you appreciate it as as that kind of adventure film. And then you get a bit older and you see it on different levels. And it's a shame Justin's not here because it's a Terry Gilliam film. And as, as you get older you realize that terry gilliam considers it the first in his uh, trilogy of the imagination second is is brazil and the third is baron munchausen uh, so the fact that you know it, it has this other textual reading feeling you can get from it later i only watched brazil because it was it was a spiritual sequel to time bandits uh, so you know it's it's a film that you watch as a kid and i enjoyed it and you, you understand it a bit better because you're a bit more wiser body why do you appreciate some more and then you're getting the humor some more and then you've seen python so now you're appreciating for the python elements and then you're appreciating the artistic elements and you come back to it at the end and it's like that was such an awesomely memorable film and it's from the 80s and it's kind of important to me because of just just how it tangled with me but anyway i rattled on enough i rattled on enough more than to fill the space that justin would have occupied i hand it over to you for dissection 
Uh, yeah, I mean, my uh, relationship with Time Bandits, I think I probably came to it, I was probably a bit older, and I didn't really see it at the time, and there was a whole thing with movie studios, I mean, this is the thing, I think that one of the lessons that maybe movie studios should have learned from the beginning of the advent of video, because I definitely didn't see it at the cinema, was um, that at the beginning they didn't want to put things on video because um, they thought that that was wrong. They thought that to allow people to watch things at home on a you know that would take away from the cinema. And if people wanted to watch a movie, they should jolly well go to the cinema and, and like it. And um, you know the the problem with that was that then a lot of upstart companies came up to fill the void of well you can't go and watch the latest cinema blockbuster at home on your vhs or Betamax, but you can watch and then they made loads of films that were you know direct to video uh, and and then that became a market share and from that the studios were like well we have to compete now and so they started bringing things in for which reason i probably didn't see time bandits i think i saw time bandits taped off the television that's how old i was so you know 12 13 late 80s and i think when you get to that age um i think i'd probably already seen brazil when i saw time bandits and it, therefore it's far more obvious to me the rough edges that the film has and it's only when you dissect it even further and go even further in time and realize that you know Time Bandits was an offshoot of all of the Monty Python stuff like Holy Grail, Life of Brian, stuff like that that they'd done and that Terry Gilliam wanted to go off and make a film on his own. He got a few people together and uh, they thought this would be a good project. And, you know, uh, George Harrison was involved again, I believe, in getting the financing together. And, they, you know, it was something they all really believed in, but... They didn't know if it would come off. And, you know, Terry Gilliam was not seen taken seriously as a filmmaker at, at this time. And I think what's interesting about it is that despite the fact it is bonkers, uh, again, it's another part of that bonkers scene uh, that we seem to have been mining quite heavily in our top fives. It does put Terry Gilliam on the map. You can't say, I mean, you know, Terry Gilliam, uh, I believe, directed one of the Monty Python movies. Holy Grail. Holy Grail, I think, yeah. I think he may have done uh, um, the one of the anthologies. Like, oh, yeah, right, yes. I like O'Brien was Terry Jones. I think he may have done one of the anthologies, like, uh, right, and okay. that's completely different. But, but the point was that, you know, this was him on his own and what he wanted to do. And if he hadn't done Time Bandits, I'm not sure that, you know, all of the crazy things that he's managed to pull off, despite all odds, and I mean despite all odds, would have happened. Because if he'd come up with something, you know... People, uh, and we will talk about this obviously in more depth at a later time, talk about the Brothers Grimm as being anemic hmm. Terry Gilliam. I thought it was fine. I do agree that it's certainly not as out there as when Terry Gilliam is giving it the full. No, and if Terry Gilliam's first movie had been more like the Brothers Grimm, I don't think, I think the whole point was that somewhere in his mind he knew if I don't make it a big risk, if I don't make it absolutely chock full of all of these crazy things, then I'm going to become more and more afraid to do that. And people will tell me that it's a bad idea. And who knows, I might even believe them. And that's where it comes down to. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, I think I went through different phases with it of thinking, first of all, mm, it isn't as good as I thought it would be. And I think that is one of the things. If you just see clips and then you're a bit older and you see it and then you kind of go, oh, it's kind of underwhelming. I didn't really feel that I, you know, it was one of them. Then you come back and go, no, but what is it? What am I watching? And then you sort of go, no, actually, this is good. 
maybe the first time I thought that there was going to be so much more stuff in it, and there wasn't. And then you sort of understand the, the circumstances under which it was made when you're older again, and it changes your relationship to the film another time and you're like oh right so this is and then it becomes this important and cherished thing that you know nobody would make time bandits today except terry gilliam and he's already done it and uh, you know i don't think that the full potential of these films has come to fruition at this time in this place because at the moment we're heading through a bit of a time in cinema where everything is very organized and the 80s, there was space for films to be very disorganised. And I think that the problem with organisation, when it's applied to absolutely everything that happens, is that cinema becomes a thing. You know, oh, that is cinema. It is cinematic. This is cinema. This is what cinema can be. Cinema is in a box. And that people like Terry Gilliam take that box, toss it into a leaf shredder, and completely revolutionise the way we look at things. And, you know, Hollywood tries to tell us that 3D does that. Mm. No, it doesn't. Time Bandits, Brazil, does that. It takes cinema, what could be cinema, what people sit down in the cinema and view through their eyes at the screen. It takes what that thing was before Time Bandits exists, tosses it in a leaf shredder, and just completely changes the way that you have to relate to cinema. And we've kind of lost that today. And I think when it comes back, because everything does come back, whatever it is, you know, things will change. Whenever that does come back, people will point to things like the career of Terry Gilliam and the career of David Lynch and the career of all these people who did these messy crazy not always entirely successful but at least you know imaginative things and say we're building on that legacy and that'll be a great day i think in the future and so that's why i think it's an important and and good choice so yes we're filled in for justin yes. there i think we have to poke justin nick in the next the next edition and uh, get into a point on time pendants again yes so ian your number one uh well my number one it's it's almost tiresome in how predictable I'm going to be. Um, like I said, uh, I'm the sort of guy that when he, he likes finds a meal he likes at a fast food chain, he goes in and orders exactly the same meal again, henceforth every time he goes there. And so in the vein of being as unadventurous as I possibly can, I humbly submit the concept that the best movie of the 1980s was Empire Strikes Back. Yes, I must say, as you were going through your preamble, I can say that I I cannot... I, I was thinking, yes, it's going to be Empire, isn't it? Mm. But um, uh, at the risk of seeming redundant, uh, please uh, essay forth on why this might be. Well, this might be. Well, of course, it's the greatest, uh, of, greatest of, the, of the Star Wars films, we are reliably told. Uh, I think for me, because it, it was also a film I experienced first time round, I have the feeling, I have the vibe within me of what it was like when Empire was the most recent Star Wars film. And, and you know, of course, we, we can whitter on at a great extent about why it's a great Star Wars film. I'm going to go over the personal route and be different. Um, it was just a kind of influx of merchandise. My dad was never shy about buying me a toy. It's the fact this is the first time in a film where I had sticker albums. This was the first time I ever really experienced the concept of seeing a still from a movie and looking at it and studying it and like oh it's like a 
it's it's frozen poignant moment from this movie that I've seen, and it seems to gain greater significance for that reason alone. It's the, it's the sudden implosion of the new wave of action figures and vehicles that came spilling into my life, like the vast horde of action figures, and I can still remember the smell of the vinyl of those figures, and the you know the, my, the number one toy for me as a child was Star Wars action figures. I didn't always play Star Wars with them. You could pretty much take your hand solo and go do whatever you wanted to do with them. You just kind of had a repertory, a vast repertory company of figures that could accompany you on whatever journeys you wanted to spin. So it's one of those films that just leaves just a huge kind of a footprint in there. And also it's it's that we didn't know how this saga was going to end. We didn't know we were going to get Return of the Jedi and it was going to involve, you know, Muppets and teddy bears at the time. And it would all work out and there'd be no sacrifices on the behalf of the good guys whatsoever uh, but at, at the time it was like there was just so much thought put into well how are they going to rescue Han how are they going to defrost him I was going to have to take Han to some kind of defrosting chamber to defrost him and then there'll be some medical recovery time I presume no just press the defrost button out he pops this is George Lucas always a good workaround you know it's the whole expectation and excitement and just that time and also like I say my brother was five and a half years old and I was the Empire Strikes Back is that sweet spot for both of us where we both had Star Wars action figures together and because you know after Return of the Jedi I remember the day a strange man came to the door and my brother handed over all his Star Wars action figures for money he just dispensed with his toy. He put away childish things, as we say. And it came to me as like, oh, are you doing that? Oh, 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 I see. And I was probably a bit put out at the time. He didn't give me first refusal on all his, you know, stormtroopers to bulk up my ranks. But regardless, you know, it, it's just that it's a time I remember so vividly when there were all these figures were new and the sticker albums and the toys and the merchandising. And Darth Vader, this is the Darth Vader film. Darth Vader's just a flunky. He is a flunky with a backstory of killing Luke's father, but it's not until Empire Strikes Back that he becomes Darth Vader. And I was so terrified of Darth Vader. There was a toy store in which a guy was dressed up like Darth Vader handing out pamphlets. And they go, hey, do you want to go up and say hello to Darth Vader and take a pamphlet? I didn't want to go near the guy. I was convinced he was going to strangle me. So, And also, this is 1980, so I must have been impossibly young at the time as well. So it's, it's terribly primal to me. But the, the, but the whole kind of crest of the wave of Empire sort of carried me forward throughout the entire decade. It was right there at the start, but it still seemed relevant to me later. I was aware as a child, even at the time, that Return of the Jedi, whilst an acceptable film, was somehow not quite as good as Empire for reasons I couldn't put my finger on at the time. So, uh, Star Wars, what a what a worthy sequel to Star Wars. Uh, what a direction to take. Uh, Lucas could very easily have just gone for another retread, Empire, have a new superweapon, Rebels, say, we're not having any of that, and Hatch plan to stop them. No, it's a film about, essentially, the Rebels running the hell away from the Empire, and then the Empire chasing them. It has the big battle sequence half an hour into the film with, with the with the Atat walkers and when you actually get to the proper climax at the end of the film it's it's a somewhat grubby chase down a corridor shooting at stormtroopers for one set of heroes and a one-sided lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and Luke uh, in the other part you are so aware of how oppressed upon Luke is how outmatched he is how cornered and doomed he is 
Um, yes, so for me, Empire Strikes Back, it's such an important film. I cannot imagine my childhood without this film. It is like a keystone. You take it away, you will change everything. Everything will have to rearrange around it. I'm by no means a super, super mad Star Wars fan, but Empire has such a special place for me. And it's why I keep going back to Star Wars, I think. Anyway, that's my go. I know you're not necessarily a huge Star Wars, Star Wars fan. It was just another set of movies, I think, for you that are out at the time. But, um, but I think it's strange I managed to get to the bottom of my list and I have not invoked Spielberg once. Um, but anyway, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, there you go, Leo. What did you make of it? What's intriguing to me about uh, Star Wars as a whole, <clears throat> and I think Empire has a lot to do with this, I think Star Wars by itself may even, if that was all there was, may even just be oh, one of those classic movies from the past at this time. But the fact of Empire sort of cements it into the culture. And we're in a period at the moment, all the things that have happened... I, I mean, you know, you've talked about what come, came after with Return of the Jedi, and, the, the, you know, people have this hatred of, of uh, Ewoks that I don't think is actually entirely misplaced. I think if the Ewoks appeared in a different story uh, in Return of the Jedi. I mean, it could still be Return of the Jedi, all of that kind of stuff. But if the, the point about it is that what I think people really don't like about the climax of Return of the Jedi is that there's a half-built Death Star in orbit around Endor and the Rebels just go and blow it up again. That's the lazy part. The idea that all of these incredibly serious characters could suddenly run across a bunch of sort of tribalistic teddy bears. I never thought, I mean, I always thought that, you know, the, the Ewoks got a bit of a harsh rap because they are willing to eat the heroes. Mm. They're not, they're not, they, they're cute in image, but their behavior belies their cute appearance. And therefore, you know, there's nothing actually wrong with the Ewoks. I mean, let's think, face it, we had the, the, um, the Jawas in the first one. I mean, it's the same kind of idea as that. I think what people actually find disappointing about the end of Return of the Jedi is that all you do is another bloody Death Star blow up. Yes. And yes. it's like, that's how you finish it. We already blew up the Death Star in number one. And, and you know, it's even weird. I think people know that subconsciously. In Clark's, he says, nothing sat right with me the second time around, and then goes on about all the contractors. But actually, what doesn't sit right about you is like, no, we have really honestly done this before. Why, why do we? And I think even in the scriptwriters' minds, there was a way out. Uh, as everyone knows, you know, Admiral Akbar famously identifies that it's a trap. Well, if the whole Death Star thing had really been some complete bait and switch, that they were never building another Death Star, and that it was all about, like, the Death Star, they didn't have any contractors in it. They got inside and discovered that there were no engines, that there was nothing in the Death Star, that it was basically like a, a big shell they'd built over, so, like Darth Vader's Imperial Command Carrier. And they, of course, the stupid Empire, and then suddenly all this stuff coming, you oh my god that's incredible we thought that they were doing this whole Death Star thing again because they'd run out of ideas actually Darth Vader was just and that would have brought it front and centre on Luke and the fact that Darth Vader wants to kill Luke but then of course you have to ask well how did they get the Emperor involved if it was just some side campaign so you know but story problems story problems the point is the Ewoks get too much hate I think it's quite funny in a way that these crazy little uh, tribal uh, teddy bear type things that they, will eat people with the drop of a hat will turn up uh, in this otherwise 
fairly dour story about people being chucked into sarlacc pits and being slaves on board some uh, you know galactic gangsters uh, skiff or whatever it is on a desert planet i think that that's that shows you the kind of variety of things that could happen what shows you the complete lack of imagination is returning to episode one again or episode four as it is but you know yes. returning to the beginning again uh the ewoks didn't bother me at the time and because i was i watched the ewok cartoon series as well and i watched the ewok caravan of courage movie because we got it cinematically released over here which is a tv movie in america so i honestly can't say the ewoks bothered me tremendously at the time i think i was more bothered by the fact it does feel like a bit of an anticlimax the Luke is never tempted. He's never seriously tempted by the dark side. I cannot see what the Emperor's plan is. To, to enrage Luke, oh, well, that somehow makes him go dark. But what's his plan then? He'll just have someone who still wants to kill him. How is he going to malleue that to, and now you will join me and help me kill all your friends? You know, and also, you don't... The redemption of Vader, I never felt like it was a redemption. He's still a selfish swine. He's just like, well, I'm going to draw the line at killing my son now. I come to think about it. It's pretty much where he goes. I don't know if that is a re-embracing of the light side of the force. But anyway, uh, Empire is where we're supposed to be. And it, it's, quite a, it's quite a bleak film. And yes, it, it is. And it's, just, it's like you go to Cloud City and it's this beautiful palace of white, but it's got so many dark corners. And every time you go to somewhere dark on Cloud City, very bad things happen. 3PO goes into a dark room, he gets shot and explodes into pieces. They, you know, they go into a dark room, Han gets tortured, and then later on gets turned into a coffee table. They actually made the Empire seem like an empire. They weren't just idiots who tripped over their shoelaces and then the, and then the uh, fortress of ultimate doom exploded again. They, they were something you basically just had to get the hell away from because they were so outmatched by it if it came down to a proper shooting war. You know, the, the cast is split up. And uh, Yoda, I think we should talk a little bit about Yoda as we're going to do Empire Strikes Back. It is strange how someone, something that is essentially a puppet, seems to get through my filters of being a puppet. I don't know whether because I just saw it young or what, but I I am able and willing to suspend my disbelief about this little man uh, who's instructing Luke in the ways of the Force without it boiling down into silliness of it all. I, I think thematically it's much more interesting as well. Um, yeah, and it's it's a great middle section in, in a great trilogy, or at least it seemed like it was. Yeah, and there's, and there's some lovely character moments, and it's great that the Falcon is busted throughout. Famously, the ship that can go into light speed cannot go into light speed for the entire duration of the movie. So uh, it's it's bleak, it's snowy, it's cold, the Empire is everywhere, Darth Vader's killing his own officers left, right and centre with terrifying effect. And I do think that it was very important in getting to this point where what happened. I mean, I think that the way that it, it goes down is Star Wars is big. Empire Strikes Back hits a, a brand new note, has some great character development, and sort of cements it in place. Return of the Jedi, and then after that, cinematically, it all goes down the tubes. Like you know, to that to to this day, then you know, Star Star Wars has not come back to the cinema punching. What really, really, you know cements it in that people will keep trying is some great stuff done in what's called you know the expanded universe where they have novels and all of this other stuff and star wars accoutrements to other <laughs> things and 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 you know what have you and uh you know 
they can't can never subtract sort of the visceral joy of uh, you know Rogue Squadron on 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 Nintendo platforms and things like that. Like you get Star Wars games where video games and you know the 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 brief of what it should feel like is available in the available cinematic materials and all that the development teams have to do is simulate being in the movie which they do and are great you know there's all of that stuff going on you know you've got this undercurrent of star wars can be great again and i think it it makes its own sort of uh you know to draw a parallel into the lord of the rings that where we are now is in this kind of after star wars period where you know star wars was a thing and people wait for star wars to come back the return of the star wars but it's not happened and we're in a a void a vacuum where Mm. the star wars that is is just a shadow of what it once was and and maybe it will come back and maybe it won't but even the story of the star wars franchise is an epic fantasy of its own and we are currently little hobbits waiting in our hole for the return of the great king to come and, and, and you know get rid of the banished the sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately in this story Lucas becomes Sauron but you know yes. that's just the way well, the cookie crumbles I'm afraid. The writer of the next Star Wars film is the same scriptwriter who penned Empire Strikes Back. Oddly that doesn't necessarily make me excited because it's just been so long. So you wonder what he's got because you really want someone to bring a fresh new exciting perspective on it all. Uh, but I suppose it's a kind of like, well, you know, everyone liked him the first time. I better give him a go. So I think what's... I think we, we, the the thing that makes me most hopeful is the fact that J.J. Abrams has done his "I've blown it" moment. Into Darkness was definitely an into you know a bl- I've blown this. It didn't really work. Thankfully, you know. We're getting a second run at that particular one, but in, in infamously, Into Darkness will not go down as the greatest of this that this new Star Trek franchise. And it was such a spectacular reversal of, of and failure of the key things that he wanted to achieve. And I think with Star Wars, he can be a lot cool. I think he blew it because he was too keen, and I think he's learned that lesson. And the thing that gives me hope is that now he's got Star Wars. He goes, no, I'm not going to be over keen to do fan service. I want to do what I'm going to really sit down and have a think about what I want out of this creatively and my screenwriter will be probably be the kind well I mean the screenwriter of Empire Strikes Back worked with George Lucas so the same screenwriter they picked the same screenwriter because it's like well what you did was you teased out of some generic ideas that George Lucas had about the kinds of things that might happen this great movie and now I'm J.J. Abrams I've got some vague ideas about things I might like to do in episode seven Will you turn that into a movie for me? And, and if the writers, you know, some writers get better. And mm. so, and I think the quieter ones are probably those writers. So maybe we should look to the forward to the future with with a, a new hope. Well, um, I think we could all say whatever they do, it'll be better than the prequels. So from that perspective, it's an open goal for Abrams. But uh, yes. God, you can never read Bottle Lightning. I think it's just great that when Empire opens up, it doesn't start with them arriving somewhere and doing some great mission. They're just getting on with their lives. It's almost like you're catching up with them. Anyway, yes, those are my one and two. I've shot my bolt. I now feel I must concede the microphone to Leo as he tells me his number four. Oh, number two. Number two, rather. Yes, my number two is, and I don't suppose anyone out there, or indeed you, or indeed Justin, if he was to think about it, would be terribly surprised by this choice. My number two film of the 80s is RoboCop. Oh, of course. 
Yes. Uh, is this one of those twists that made sense now that you've heard it? You go, oh, yeah, I suppose that's really obvious, to be honest. Yes. Robocop, um, I think the thing that is most important about Robocop is, is, you know, as I've said before, it's the first 18 rated movie that I've seen ever. And it's kind of spoiled all 18 rated movies that <laughs> followed it. The only ones that come even close to the same levels of just gusto about the complete hideous sort of inappropriate levels of violence and 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 sort of cynicism and, and all of that kind of stuff uh, are things like Dread and... Um, and, and, and Evil Dead 2 and, and whatnot. I've watched dozens of 18-rated movies since then, and when you watch them and they've just got a little bit, you know, there's a moment that tips it into 18. It's like, which would, you know, you, you go to the BBC, which moment in Robocop um, convinced you that this should be an 18-rated movie? It's like, well, here's a list. <laughs> um, but, you know, just... And it was Verhoeven's, like, I, I think, you know, Robocop as a script when it was originally about was like something that, 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 you know, the writers felt, this is a good chunky action movie. And then Verhoeven came along and went, no, no, you do not realize this is a, this is a film about the robot Christ. And it's just that idea of layering all those things together and the, the sort of cultural image of Robocop. And, uh, you know, it's a film that, that came about at a time that was made, you know, at a time when I was so young, I was actually kind of afraid to approach it. Would it blow my mind? You know, it's a, it's a film actually that kind of taught me that, you know, ratings are subjective, that they might be a legal thing when it comes to seeing a cinema, um, but that when you actually consider it, it's the person that watches that knows whether something is suitable for them, not... And if you're avoiding a film and you really can't bring yourself to watch it, you probably shouldn't. But if, on the other hand, despite the fact that you've been told that you shouldn't be watching it, you really want to, then probably you'll be able to handle it. Probably. You know, if there's, you know, all reservations were blown away, along with most of the cast in Robocop. I just watched it and I understood that it wasn't real. I understood that this was like a complete weird, twisted fantasy. And I think. One of the things that Verhoeven did was he broke the idea that you could take some Scandinavian or Dutch or French or, you know, all of these people like Luc Besson and uh, and uh, the guy who made Stargate, whose name temporarily escapes me. Um, but, yeah, all these European directors, they brought a particular flavor to an american blockbuster that 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 american directors would they were too immersed in america to get it across so robocop is simultaneously a very american movie but it also manages to comment upon america it's a way i mean you know robocop is a predecessor to grand theft auto yeah, the video games, hmm. uh, in many senses, because it has that same level of, the, you know, the adverts in RoboCop are as to billboards, radio messages in Grand Theft Auto. It, it compiles this whole, I'm an outsider and this is what I see is rotten in the core of, of corporate America. And an American director could never have communicated it quite so adroitly. And, and yet at the same time, despite all of that sort of heavy political and cultural commentary, it's a film about a guy who gets put in a tin can and then blows the bad guys away. Like John Wayne. Yeah, like, you know, whatever. And then what I've come to appreciate over time is, although it's this origin story of this Robocop character, he hasn't really got another story that isn't impossibly tragic and awful and terrible. And they've tried of 
God, have they tried to make Robocop into a superhero and it doesn't work precisely because of that dark underpinning to the movie. And I think that that means that Robocop does sort of stand alone as a movie. It seems like it would be good for there to be more of it. But every time they put more on it, it doesn't really work. So, yeah, I mean, Robocop 2 actually does come close to engaging with that and saying, well, Murphy was a very individual guy. He had a very individual psychology and nobody else. There's even a plot point. They can't make another Robocop. That's the whole problem of Robocop 2 is they can't repeat their success. And, you know, whatever else you might want to say about Frank Miller's story there, he did hit very keenly on the fact that it's really difficult to think of anything for Robocop to do after he has reasserted his shredded humanity at the end of the first Robocop movie. And after that, it's all downhill from there. He's not going to have a nice life. Robocop is not going to have a happy ending ever. So there we go. Um and that's that's it. It's a very big influence on me creatively. I think uh, it, it, it was a film I saw when I was frankly too young to be watching RoboCop. I, I still kind of remember uh, the sort of the, the visceral shock the film could uh, dispose upon you. It was a film that all my friends had seen first and were talking to each other about. So I knew the whole thing about you have twenty seconds to comply. You know, I think you better do what he says, Mister Kinney. I knew I knew about all those scenes before I even saw them. I was surprised how early in the film they were. Yes, it is it is a landmark film with uh, ever di- ever diminishing uh, sequels. Let us not speak of the flying RoboCop, but uh, RoboCop itself. Uh, yes, it's it's so clever and it it is a satire. Even the script stage it was satire. I believe the story goes that Verhoeven was given the script, and he was like, eh, and threw the script to one side. His wife read it. It's like, no, you have to do this. Um, or maybe it was someone else, like a producer or something. It, it was a movie you just watched again and again and, and again. I don't know about you. And it is a film that you can study, and you just see these little layers coming up. Like you say, if Irvin going, oh, he's like a robot messiah. He's a, he's a messiah for the modern America. He's this gun-loving, body-armored, kick-ass warrior. It's really hard for me to say something about Robocop because it's just Robocop. You feel like you just didn't just say Robocop and there it all is. All your memories of it come flooding back. This dystopian near future in, um, was it Detroit? Is where it's supposed to be? Detroit, Detroit. yes. Detroit. Uh, um, and yes, it is, it is, is bitterly cynical. You know, corporations owning the police and it, the police are exactly how a corporation would run it. They, they, they cut services, they cut salaries, you know, it all becomes a bit more pathetic. And it's, it's such a kind of human life is just so worthless in this future. It is so worthless that there's nothing unethical about getting a dead cop's body and putting in a cyborg. I mean, the chief bad guy, Dick Jones, he's the one that feels this thing is, is, is a bit of an abomination. He's probably well, right. But, well, but the point is that the whole, that whole dialogue occurs in a space where it's like the reason they scoop up a dead cop's body and put it in Robocop is because, um, you know, the other guy wants to make an, you know, he wants to make a name for himself. In, in corporate America. And ED209 is one product, and he thinks that the Robocop product might just edge ED209 out, especially bearing in mind the fact there's a kind of open secret that ED209 is rubbish, yes. and therefore anything would be better than ED209. So all he needs to do is get something together quickly and, and you know, 
piss in the old guy's face. And the old guy believes that Robocop is an abomination because it's stopping him making loads of money off ED-209. He doesn't give a crap that they've taken a dead guy and put him in a robot tin can <laughs> and sent him out on the street to mop things up. He doesn't care about that. He says he, he, he invokes the rhetoric of moral indignation, but he has no morals. Therefore, he cannot be morally indignant. All he cares about is the fact that this other guy, this upstart, has has pissed on his chips. That's all he cares about, really. And that's what's so, so underlyingly cynical about it, that all that is good and happy and hopeful and kind about humanity is now being put into a metal can and given a gun in its leg and told to go out and kill the bad man. And and when it does so, you know, it, you've programmed it to be polite and to tell people to thank people for their cooperation and do stuff like that's it's it's you know it's a cyberpunk uh, you know people are, are always obsessed that cyberpunk must include the internet and it must include you know virtual reality and in fact in the nineties this becomes increasingly a kind of manic preoccupation but this is a visual metaphor of cyberpunk that man and machine meet together in one place and the relationship creates a dramatic tension of its own and that's you know that's the thing and you know it's like and what it says in the end is a human being can withstand this technological onslaught but he has to be very pure and if you're not as the second movie then goes on to tell ad nauseum you're just going to get crushed and that's the way it is i mean yeah incredible sort of dialogue in a sort of cultural commentary in a movie that's a you know an action movie it's it's an action movie and some people and you can read it and enjoy it like that you can enjoy it like a hamburger but the hamburger is made out of minced steak mm. that's the fact so there we go yes I, I, it's, def- it's definitely a worthy meal i would order it again yes <laughs> so uh i guess there's only one film left in the whole of the filming world of the 1980s and that is my number one uh um, ten dogs and I've come to it last uh, purely out of accident that this is the last film that we're going to be discussing our top five. Um, and I think it is, uh, you know, at the beginning, before we did the 1980s, I thought this film was going to be a shoe-in for number one. And I said, well, no, because when I before I even looked at my full list of the 1970s, I thought that certain films would probably end up at the top of the totally didn't. But no, you, it couldn't be unseated all the way through the 1980s. I've known that this was going to be my number one. And it, in the end, it won. I couldn't. I tried. And I really did. I tried to put it lower, anywhere lower. And it wouldn't go off the top spot. So, incontrovertibly, without any doubt or hesitation in my mind, I say that my number one movie, the most important of the movie, that movie of the 1980s for me, is Ghostbusters. <laughs> go. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ghostbusters is the first time that I. It was interesting because I suppose. In 1984, I was nine. I was that prime point for all the merchandising. I remember that, you know, there were breakfast cereals with T-shirt transfers and breakfast, which I made my grandmother iron onto shirts for me. And breakfast cereals with stickers that I stuck all over my lunchbox and real T-shirts and, you know, just all this Ghostbusters stuff everywhere. So it was the merchandising paradise that I was in. I was immersed in it. And it's the, 
you know, I think that when you co- get into that sort of, I'm really looking forward to this movie, and you go into the movie, and then you watch the movie, and you come out and you think, oh, uh, that's not that wasn't quite. I mean, you know, Batman 1989. This is what happened. I I was into the Batman thing. I I even knew exactly what would happen because I'd read the comic book before I went into actually watch the movie, and I watched the movie, and I came out, and somewhere along the line, something had fallen quite short. Ghostbusters is the exact diametric opposite of that for me. I drunk in the culture surrounding the Ghostbusters. I knew the Ghostbusters logo. I'd seen the Ghostbusters car. I'd seen the Ghostbusters uniforms. I'd seen stills of the proton packs. I'd seen uh, the Slimer. I'd seen the clip with the Slimer, which was doing the rounds on every film program everywhere. But nothing, nothing that they bombarded with me with could have prepared me for the experience of actually watching Ghostbusters. I mean, it gave me a nightmare, a nightmare. I only had, I don't have recurring nightmares, but the night after I watched Ghostbusters, I had a nightmare about the underlying story of Ghostbusters. It was a PG movie. I was nine and I'd been so wound up by this, but it's the fact that in this movie, which has Bill Murray wisecracking and, and, and Dan Aykroyd being goofy and, and, you know, all of this stuff and loads of jokes, loads of jokes which are genuinely funny over and over again, that the underlying core, the point, the problem that the Ghostbusters exist to solve at the end of the movie, that one thing is scary enough to give a small child nightmares that they don't shy away from that, that they don't go, hey, guys, stop for a minute. This is a this is a screwball comedy. Let's just step back from this. And the fact that at the end, you know, you know that uh, Goza the Gazarian is uh, a Cthulhu-esque gigantic entity of the, the type that will devour entire worlds. You are not in any doubt about that. The whole build-up has told you this is world-crushing stuff, and they've got some pretty light laser things on their back which are then in the sequence shown to be almost entirely ineffective against Zool. And so you know that when Goza turns up, they're in real trouble. And yet during that entire sequence, they continue to make jokes that they are facing very realistically into the face of the actual apocalypse. And, you know, it's not the combining of the streams per se. The combining of the streams is a visual metaphor. It's a visual metaphor for if you look at something and refuse to take it seriously long enough, it will explode in a giant puff of marshmallowy stickiness. Because that's what really defeats Zool and Goza is that they take themselves incredibly seriously. But then it becomes apparent that they rely upon the fact that everyone else will take them similarly seriously. But then when they're confronted by the fact that one of them imagines them to be a giant mascot off a packet of marshmallows, and then another one has passes the comment, hey, he's a sailor, he's in New York, get him laid, we shouldn't have any trouble. You know, it's that. It's that fact that you can stare into the face of the abyss and go, yeah, I've kind of seen something very similar before. Uh, I think it was like the, the wallpaper on my mother-in-law's walls was just, you know, it's just that fact that it doesn't matter what they show them, every, one of them can come up with a joke. And that is the thing that, that kind of stuck with me. And that's possibly why I only ever had one nightmare. Because in the end, you find inside yourself. It's like when someone tries to tell you you are wrong and that things are dark and that you will be crushed. If you can just look inside yourself and make fun of them, they'll go away. And that's, that's kind of a thing that is worth teaching to people who are frightened because humor lightens the mood.
and that's that's what it's all about. So I think that's possibly you know the important life lesson Ghostbusters taught me and why it is stuck with me. And in fact, I've always tried to put that in. You know, in the end, you can always make a wisecrack. Yes, it, it is. It is for me the film that put New York on my mental landscape. It's a good New York film, apart from else. And it is genuinely scary. At least if you had a nightmare. I remember going to my mum and saying how pleased I was that I didn't have a nightmare after watching <laughs> Ghostbusters. Because it's not, especially at the beginning in the library, uh, when the, uh, the, the the ghost in the library sleep turns and screams right at you and they run out there. Uh, you know, our heroes run out there screaming themselves. In a way, now that you come to mention that scene, that plays into the thesis. At the beginning, the only reason the ghost really manages to get them to run away is because they take it seriously. Later, you get the feeling that should they repeat that scene after the end, they'd be like, seriously, that's all you've got? Really? Yes. Yes. Look at at my ra. (laughs) (laughs) Ghostbusters was kind of huge for me. I was a little bit younger. So consequently, you know, of course, Ghostbusters film was a film you just had to watch over and over again. And I suppose some some of the more some of the humor may have slipped over your head, but you you kind of got everything. You you you, you understood that uh, throughout the film, Bill Murray's character, Brakeman, you know, he's kind of blagging it. You know, he's he's he, he, the other guy is a scientist. He just seems to be this guy that they know who similarly has a qualification, but he's just kind of winging it with them. Well, he's, no, but the point is that you know. Well, I mean, in, in, if you think about it, yes, he gives this impression that he doesn't really care, which is central to their victory in the movie, as it happens. Yes, but but the point is that his arc is very much at the beginning. It's like he's a guy who's very bright. He's done science, and then he settles in parapsychology because he knows for a fact that it's all nonsense, yes. and that therefore he can eke out a tenured career uh, uh, exploring nonsense, and that yes. will be great. He's in, it, he's in it for the grant, and he's in it to hit on the hot female students as well. Yes. Is that it? And by the end, it's like, well, I still kind of believe that. What he realises is nonsense, is this uh, supposed authority that people like Walter Peck of the Environmental Protection Agency put out, and that just because he believed that ghosts and and, and these gigantic supernatural entities, they were nonsense too, and and actually still kind of does, he believes authority is nonsense, but he is willing to accept that there are dark powers. And as long as you don't take their authority seriously, but acknowledge that the power exists, you'll be okay. Yes. And that's... show, show, Show him an official and he will just ridicule them. Yes, this man has no dick. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the humour perhaps doesn't quite get you. Can you appreciate it more as you get older? Uh, but it's 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 the, one of those films that's good because it just has so many levels. For the kiddies, you've got the run around with the with the alarmingly entertaining proton packs chasing ghosts, capturing them with a big, huge, evil ghost at the end. And you know, and, and yes, I can see why you'd pick this movie. It's a, it's it's a real kind of diamond. He's like, I don't think they tried to make a sequel. It had problems. I don't know if going into a sequel with a clear head would necessarily have been them to any benefit to them. It's a bit like lightning, this film. I don't think they expected it to be as big as it was. Well, I think I think what the common theme of my top five, which I didn't even realise there was a particularly common theme, is this idea of bottled lightning. That even I mean, although Back to the Future's Part One and Two are good. 
Back to the Future Part 2 is particularly peculiar in its mixing of of everything. Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead and the Medieval Dead mixed together in a particularly heady brew. The Princess Bride, which fantastically no one ever bothered to try and make a sequel to, uh, is is humour and uh, fairy tale heroics mixed together in a every one of the robocop is action movie and cynical cultural commentary each one is a particular mixture that if it had been off slightly one way or the other it just would have fallen flat on its face but each one of my films is like something where they managed to pull off something incredibly difficult and that's what pushes it above and i think that is always you know that there's layers of thesis and antithesis in all of the films and one of them is well i'm going to make a zombie movie but it's going to be a comedy i'm going to make a wacky comedy about men who catch ghosts in lasers but at the same time i'm going to go the full cthulhu the darkness will be properly dark um and and that's you know that's the courage of storytelling is to say well this element of my story must be in complete opposition to all the other elements of my story because otherwise it won't work and to have the courage to follow that through and that's that's kind of the way that i've i've come forward that you want to collide these elements in in making a movie so yes that's that's pretty much it looking at your at your full five list it's quite interesting 87 is a very special year for you sir evil dead princess bride robocop 87 yes well i mean i think that's just coincidence because the thing about it is a new robocop was happening in 87 i probably didn't really get to see it till late 87 or early 88 uh princess bride didn't get to see till the 90s evil dead 2 i didn't get to see till the 90s so although they all come out of that year i didn't see them in that year yes yes it's it's quite interesting it's from the same year and also you have back to the future 89 and Ghostbusters is your earliest film in 84. Justin, yeah. meanwhile, let's look at his years. I'm sorry, I'm having a year fascination at the moment. His earliest is Raiders Lost Ark, 81. Uh, Raider, Blade Runner is 82. Thing is 82. Then it's Brazil, 85. And Princess Bride, 87 again. Um, so his is more stacked towards the... Um, he's more, early 80s. Yeah. I'm definitely early 80s. I have, you know... Empire at 1980, Time Bandits 1981, Star Trek 2 82, War Games 83, Aliens 86. 86 is as high as I go. That's quite good. A lot of my films are primal childhood films that I, that I saw when I was a child. So that's it, funny. Really interesting. I, I'm really locked down the lower 80s. Justin's kind of in the middle, but you're definitely upper 80s. So uh, you, if you've got the list there as well of, of Sue's, I mean, what we've got, we've got Labyrinths. That was 86, wasn't no, it? No, no, Labyrinth is on the list. We're talking about man. Oh, uh, Top Gun. Top yeah, Gun is there. Top Gun is four. Uh, three is Never Ending Story. Two is Abyss. Number one. Number one is City Lost Nine. Boys. Lost Boys. Uh, which means number five. Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator. Of course it is. Flight yes, of the so- Navigator. So but that's very much in the latter half of the, all of those films come fall beyond 1985, I think. So, well, in fact, many I, of them are from 86. I know you were born I'm in 80. Born later than you yeah, 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 yeah. I'm saying I was born later than you lot, so these are, this explains why you lot were all born 70s. I was born 80s. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just it's interesting that we've got that. Well, it's interesting, though, the funny thing about it is Ian's 
in between me and you in terms of age, yeah. but his are all really early 80s. Yeah. So, And what's, what was also fascinating to me when we went through the years was that it did get to 1987, and you were like, oh, I haven't seen most of these movies, I don't know anything about them. And, you know, and then the movies that you do know, it's like, oh, I saw that later. So it seems to me that sometime around 1987, you kind of stopped watching movies for a bit and then picked it up again later. I don't think so. I mean, I have, I have seen Robocop. I haven't seen Princess Bride. Didn't see, because I wasn't really a chaser of horror films necessarily. I wasn't a chaser of action films necessarily. Back to Future 2 I missed because I was, I was in hospital with a dislocated hip. Ghostbusters, of course, I saw Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw most of these, most of these films I, I've encountered. Most of them are acknowledged to be good films from the 80s in and of themselves. Yes, maybe we shall have to have some sort of, some sort of spreadsheet for further analysis. <laughs> well, I think what it is is that what I'm most delighted by is that we've only had one overlap, and that means between the four well, of the us, Princess Bride, me and Justin both had the Princess yeah. Bride. Uh, but apart from that, all of the films that have been mentioned by all four of us 80s kids are pretty much unique to ourselves, which I'm very glad about, because what it means is that you've got 19 films there, and I'm sure that we could probably do, scrape together a 20th from somewhere that basically make up a sort of this is our reading list, our watching list of the 1980s there. So uh, that's that's brilliant. Uh, if, if people wish to disagree with us, if they wish to agree with us, if they wish to comment in any other way, want us, where might they find us to do that, Ian? One place you can go to comment uh, upon our choices or film selections would be our Facebook page. It is our community hub. Please go there, like and comment. Uh, yes, uh, if I would click the page up, it is found at Facebook, and that's forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. It's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Please go there, like, so forth, as I have said. But of course, podcasts are what it's all about. So point your web browsers towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E I G H T I E S kids.podomat.com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download directly to your PC for dark reasons of your own. But we are also found elsewhere on the internet. On the internet. For instance, the entire backlog of all our previous podcasts can be found on. Uh, leostableford.blogspot.com or leostableford.com if you can't be bothered to type blogspot who can really um, yes we are definitely in the process of moving to a, uh, an archive uh, it needs some time and love spent on it um, I'm currently in the process of moving house as I've said before uh, but uh, this should be settling down sometime around early March so I would say that that would probably be the time to look out for me being able to spend some time making lovingly crafting an archive of all of those <laughs> of our own Watch out for us telling you about that in future shows. Uh, apart from that, Justin can be found at DeviantArt under the name Justin Wyatt, uh, where many examples of his artwork may be found. Um, and I think that about uh, wraps up the 80s for us. Yeah. The 80s, the 80s. well, it doesn't really, because as we have previously commented, there will be special focuses on 80s and, and indeed phenomena such as Patrick Swayze, who straddled the 80s and 90s like Colossus. We shall be returning to these phenomena as we wend our, our slightly miserable way through the uh, dreary days of the 1990s, um, I, am, I am perhaps more hopeful. I mean, maybe there will be more overlaps, in fact, but I'm more hopeful that the task of chopping down the films of the 1990s into top fives will be much easier come this yes. time in a few months. Oh, it will be um, easier. 
But we'll, but, but yes, but we'll be. I mean, we we managed to distill ten films out of the nineteen seventies between us, Ian, that we we uh, th- feel are our, our definitive reading list. But um, now we have nineteen films from the nineteen eighties, and I would possibly move that the twentieth film, the hidden film, if you like, that uh, that should possibly be tacked to the end, would be Big Trouble. Because that's the one that you know. Yeah. Because I think the I thing, have to agree with that. Big yeah. Little China because obviously, problem. yes, yeah. yeah. Well, Sue agrees. Justin nearly had it, but he had the thing instead. And my, it's definitely my number six. So I think we would definitely say the hidden bonus feature to make twenty films in the nineteen eighties is Big Trouble in Little China. So we've got twenty films there. Is the nineties going to be twenty films, five each, or is it going to be a ragtag? bag of just a few films that everybody likes that that may number well, maybe I, 11 i think or to start with we're just going to have to take it one year at a time i think that is definitely the case so uh, 80s kids remain 80s kids and move your 80s eyes over the time of the <laughs> 90s when cinema was trying to convince us that the 90s would be so much better than those rubbish 80s and in the I end oh yeah no i mean i'm not saying there, you know, there, okay, there was a dis- yeah it definitely gets more indie and it definitely gets more dirgy and it definitely gets more there's a lot more you have to kind of suck yeah. through the, the yeah. fun got sucked out of the, the 90s. discussion the discussion i think uh of the 90s is going to be uh yes very interesting because the 90s is now set in history that it has to be compared against the 80s and it, it fails by comparison. And we've had this discussion that it's not that there were no good films in the 90s. There were good films in the 90s. It's just that when you set it next to the 80s, there are films in the 80s that we haven't even discussed that I would be happy to pop in the DVD player, sit down and watch now. And I think what's going to happen in the 90s is that those films we don't discuss, nobody will really care. I don't think there'd be as much outrage. Oh, you left out, um, you know, X. I can't believe you left that out. I, I don't believe that's going to happen. So, yeah. But we shall see. We may have an interstitial show next week, e.g. looking at something else entirely. Uh, but soon, soon, we shall be back with 1990. And what a joy I'm sure that will be. But for now, from me, Leo, I'm going to say goodbye. And from Ian, are you going to croak goodbye? Well, I'm now going to concede to my panicked doctor's advice that I get some rest urgently and go have a lie yes. down. So, yes, Good so well, everyone. It has been a pleasure. And I'm sure that if Justin were still with us, he would say goodbye too, but he's not. So, for I'll now. Yes, he's going to say goodbye, yes, goodbye on his behalf. Goodbye wife. from Justin and me. There, you there go. we go. <laughs> there we go. That's a sweet note on which to end, I think. So how exactly do we do a coda to the 80s? I'm not sure you can do one exactly. What would it even be like? Quick, everyone, um, let's get into an escape pod that's shaped like a Rubik's Cube. You know, what would we do <laughs> Oh, no, we don't need to do a coda this, to the list. The list is the list. It, it doesn't get any better than the list.
that's it. You know, to to over egg the pudding would certainly be a, a heinous crime indeed. In that case, I will simply say that the incidental music used was Fun in a Bottle, Ashton Manor, and Discovery Hit, composed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. And leave it at that. <laughs>